Welcome to The Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. In this episode, Lisa Hutchinson, Managing Director of J.C. Williams Group, joins us to talk about her rich, decades-long background in retail and the retail megatrends brought together in the annual Eveltop Group's Global Retail Trends and Innovations Report. For the past decade, one of my favorite reads of the year. We talk about the 2020 report, the four key trends that pulled together the retail case studies, and a few of the standout retailers representing each of the four big trends. Next, Carl Littler, Senior Vice President of Public Affairs from RCC, returns to the podcast to bring us up to speed on the ratification process and timeline in Canada for the new NAFTA agreement, COSMA. Carl also provides a masterclass on understanding the new hard-fought de minimis rules that will help keep the playing field level for online retailers in Canada. But first, let's jump right into my conversation with Lisa from J.C. Williams. Lisa, welcome to The Voice of Retail. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, my pleasure. Listen, tell me about uh, tell me about yourself. Tell me about J.C. Williams. And, and you've got a long, great history in in, uh, in retail. You and I recently just met, actually. But it's funny. Surprisingly. We've been, it's one of those people you're like, how have we not met in the past 20 years somehow? Exactly. But anyway, it's great to, you know, this is, it's great to, uh, to meet you and now have you on the podcast. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm Lisa Hutchison. I'm the managing partner at J.C. Williams Group. We are a boutique retail consulting firm based here in Toronto. Um, Personally, going way back, it all started for me on the sales floor where I really developed the love of retail, specifically operations. Um, I started um, back in the 80s, um, dating myself here, I guess, uh, with Cotton Ginny. The company was really small. We were, I think, a dozen stores at the time, and I was part of a group that grew that business to over 400 stores very quickly mm. and multiple divisions. We had broken it up and, and uh, started kids and, and, uh, and plus size and intimates, and so that was a really great experience. I went on to Reitman's, uh, again, in senior operations roles, um, overseeing Um, Again, a couple of different brands, and then moved on to Comark, which at the time I think they had about 12 brands, Mm. and again in senior operations. Uh, And then I was invited, there was a big initiative that was going on across their stores uh, in North America, about a thousand stores, and I was asked to wear the operations role for the special project. And I really uh, loved the idea of projects. I really thought, I have found my niche. Um, it was the blend of retail operations and mm. projects. So that's, that's, the, that's the spark of the consulting totally, part, right? Totally, right? totally. You know, in reflection, I look back and I think about when I was in different stores and different districts and regions, uh, I was always asked to, you know, parachute in and solve mm. problem stores and turn businesses around when I was within the corporate and then this marrying of projects and, um, it, and you know, trying to support and turn businesses around yeah. really sparked that consultancy. So I went out on my own and I was helping indie retailers and uh, retailers turn their businesses around, help them with new strategies and an opportunity with J.C. Williams, uh, you know, came available. Uh, it was a firm that I had always admired and, uh, you know, it's karma. Here, it's, it's right. time for me to be right here. On. So that was about 18 years ago, mm-hmm. and I've been working alongside the firm. Um, had the enormous uh, pleasure and opportunity to uh, be mentored by John Williams. And um, I guess it's been almost a couple of years. We started a conversation about transitioning the mm-hmm. business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was a visionary and never saw himself actually retiring, but right. wanted to be able to step back. And uh, so we started conversations. And uh, in late 2018 and 20, mm-hmm. early 2019, myself and my business partner, Patrick Watt, who also had had an association with the firm, um, actually officially made it official and started transitioning the business. So, and I took on the role of managing partner and Patrick, um, as I said, also had been working with the firm um, and brings a food service element. He's a food service planning and design expert. And so we really see um, how important food is. You know, sure. the food is becoming so important in retail space. It's a real- 
real marriage of, of totally. it, it's a really savvy approach because there's such an integration marriage, whether it's grocery rants or whether you're just in the bigger, broader exactly. live, work, play kind of trends, right? Really, which is where we have been finding our sweet spot in mm. terms of where the firm is going. Um, we, uh, JC Williams Group, um, is you know that boutique retail consultancy firm. Um, we are we found we find that our business is really built on the foundation of research. That's one of our key differentiators. We have various different types of research mm. from our national retail bulletin that we put out every month that is free for anybody who wants to subscribe, um, as well as we do, uh, we have um, a subscription model for retailers and uh, real estate developers, mm. things like that, that would like to have specialized, tailored monthly uh, subscription-based research. Mm. And we also believe that all of our projects are built on that foundation of research. And uh, so, yeah, we are very much, our model is very focused on that uh, live, work, play, shop. Um, And uh, that's where we are today. And it's been a really great ride and really exciting. And we're looking forward to the future. Just a quick sample. You've been talking about interesting things about uh, libraries and and planning. Just just touch on that a little bit because I think it's really... I, you know, it's a really interesting way to highlight the trend in the work that you're being asked to do. Mm-hmm, yeah. So we have been doing, um, you know, very traditional retail kind of consulting that you would think of helping retailers define strategy, mm-hmm. working with shopping centers and developers that are looking to, um, you know, enhance the retail program. And but but we have also been doing a lot of work with healthcare, healthcare, university. Um, and college campuses and tourism, and so um, yeah, we're excited to be working with um, with with the Ottawa Public Library right now mm-hmm. in terms of their new facility, helping them with a retail and food service strategy, um, working with um, hospitals, you know, really in using retail to build community and help the healing and help the people flow through the through the buildings and retail providing a better environment for healing as well as the staff that are working there mm. similarly in the college campuses so it is really that um, the work that we've been doing with the campuses understanding how people use retail and how that plays out in that whole work live play shop in a community and so your uh, J.C. Williams, you being J.C. Williams, is part of the Ebeltoff Group. I'm saying that correctly, mm-hmm. I think. And, that is and, correct. Um, first of all, tell us a little bit about the Ebeltoff Group. But what I'm really keen about talking about is is one of my favorite books of the year, and I've been uh, following it for many, many years, uh, is the Global Trends and Innovation book that comes out each and every year. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, I've been in retail for a long time. I think I know a lot of the players. Without fail, I'm like, I never heard of these guys. I'm like, that's, it's such a fabulous book. So first of all, tell us about uh, the Ebeltoff Group and then the, the connection of what that group does. And then let's dive right into the, the Shears edition. Yeah, for sure. So uh, J.C. Williams Group is the exclusive Canadian partner of the Ebeltoff Group, which is a global retail uh, consortium of uh, global retail experts um, representing um, 18 countries, mm. uh, 25 emerging markets. And so basically, um, this is a group of like-minded boutique firms. Mm. We, uh, we meet twice a year in sort of a mastermind kind of environment that we meet uh, any, all over the world. And uh, we have that opportunity to brainstorm, we collaborate, we share experiences, the kinds of projects that we're working on. We, uh, we tour stores in that marketplace that we're, we're in. And it's really an opportunity for us to get a global perspective. And, you know, it, it's, adds so much value to our customers to be able to bring 
that global perspective. And even when we are doing best practice research or other kinds of research for our clients, we have this network that we can reach out to. And so, you know, it's not just those twice a year meetings. We are in communication, my email, there's emails happening all the time in terms of from all the different member countries. And so that, um, the Ableton formed uh, back in 1990. We've been Mm -hmm. members right from the very beginning. We were original founding members. And then, um, so then the book has, Mm. so, you know, since the group formed, we have been talking trends and innovation. And back in 2005, I believe it is that we are civil, this year is our 15th publication. We said, you know what, we should really take this analysis and put it together into a book, into a publication, into a tangible um, reference guide or Bible, and maybe some mm-hmm. may see it as, um, and to help understand and focus on the trends and these innovations that are coming forward. And the thing that's really great is, you know, you're seeing it in a context of however this particular trend is evolving, but then you can quickly see how the other sectors embrace the trend um, or different categories. Cross-pollinization of the trends. For sure. They were like, oh, how could this apply to me? And I think, you know, maybe uh, one that comes to mind for me is Birchbox, you know, one of the first subscription models. And now you're seeing that subscription model across all different categories. And so taking the learning from this original idea and how it morphs and changes and evolves as people are getting perspective and how that they can spark innovation for their business and so um, yeah we're we just uh, we just are launching our 2020 or 15th year four and, and I see four as always four trends so take me through the four trends and then we'll uh, we'll release the the kind of I, I don't know if that's the winner but it's kind of the mar- one of the marquee retailers and then talk about uh, the process about uh, how each of the member of the Ableton's kind of getting in, involved. So what are the four things that collectively you've observed that we need to know about? Yeah, so basically what happens is throughout the year, the members all start to compile, you know, the really interesting cases that we see across, you know, globally. And we start to pull together what we've identified as really interesting things that we would like to share with our community. And so we compile these. And this year, um, there were 40 cases that were presented. Mm. And so as we curate and read through the different cases, it's you start to see these emerging trends. And this year, we've landed on four. There has been years, there's actually been more than four. Mm. But for the last couple of years, we've really landed on four. And so this year, uh, the first one is omni-integration. So, you know, we've been thinking omni-channel, but it's really omni-channel, bricks and clicks, reducing friction, and that whole, you know, uh, integration of technology into businesses. The second one is extreme convenience. So we know that consumers today are time-starved more than ever. So it is eliminating pain points, it's seamless retail, on-demand retail, so, you know, really taking convenience to a new level. The third is extreme experience. So, you know, think of these amazing flagship stores that you're seeing, this amplification, brand building, emotional, social sharing. So, you know, we've been talking about experience, but now we are seeing these incredible experiences Mm. in retail. Uh, sustainable practices, you know, so sustainability continues to be on the forefront for us. Uh, brands that are about purpose, responsibility, conscious consumption, activism. So those have really been the definition of where we see the trends going this year. I, re- I heard this great phrase at, at the Restaurant Canada show, um, the world on your plate, someone mm. said, and I thought, I, I th- and, and the world in your glass was kind of too complimentary, and, and how that Gen Z and people are looking more now at, you know, what they eat, what they consume, and uh, want to understand and are judging uh, brands and and, uh, and retailers by that kind of worldview of sustainability. Mm. However that means, it means different things. I talked to a master sommelier mm. who n- tells me the big trend is actually vegan wines. Oh, interesting. Um, and so interesting, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it, the trends all kind of point in that direction. All right, mm-hmm. so drum roll, please, <laughs> of all the retailers featured. And I guess it's like, you know, first amongst many, really, because there's so many great case studies. Which is the one that stood out the most 
and that was presented uh, in the book. Yeah, there are so many great ones to choose from, and each year, yeah, we totally, you know, there's one that always does stand out. So, you know, we really recognize these top innovators, Uh, but this year, the top innovation case goes to the Nike House of Innovation in New Mm. York City. Mm. I know you've been there. Fifth Avenue one. Yeah, yeah, you've taken retailers um, on your store tours, I know. This really offers customers that authentic, immersive, human connection to the Nike brand. You know, it has the elements that are so unique in terms of the app that you can pre-order and have something sitting in their um, locker. locker. Yeah. 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 And uh, you can reserve items. You can, uh, they they use that data to offer on-the-go access to products based on the locals that are in the area. I mean, it's really an incredible use of connecting the digital and the physical space. So I think it's it's really... uh, it's really deserves its place as the top innovative case. You know, what's impressive to me about the store, of itself, I went, I think, the first month it was open. But mm-hmm. what they've continued to do well is reinvent, the sp- not the physical space, but the use of the space. Like, they're not mm-hmm. standing still. Because yes. I, I popped in again this year. And mm-hmm. literally, I, I you know had to go back out. Is this the same store that it used to? Because it looks so different. They're being so innovative, not just in the core concept, but in and around reinventing the concept within the four walls. And and doing new things. And I think that's really how retailers in general are winning today. Mm. And for each of these, in omni-integration, extreme convenience, extreme experience, and sustainability, any examples that pop out uh, of retailers in each of those categories? That's a great question. Because, uh, again, there's so many great cases. And like you, you know, there was some that were new to me, um, some that, you know, we've shared throughout the year that we've heard about. And then, but, uh, you know, I'm always excited when I mm-hmm. get to see the first draft um, to see some of these really cool cases. Um, I think the one in Omni integration that stands out for me is Carvana. Um, I have had not great experiences buying a car in a physical, traditional Mm. retail model, um, store, you know, car store kind of environment. Uh, This is really has taken that car experience and changed it. And it has allowed users to, it's an e-commerce model for used cars, offering free next day delivery of any vehicle from thousands of Mm. cars in their inventory. A customer can search for purchase, finance, trade-in, all online using a computer, laptop, um, tablet, and mobile-friendly, which is amazing. But they also do have showrooms, so for those that still want that physical experience. And then they've taken it that physical experience even further, (laughs) and they have these super cool car vending machines. So, <laughs> you know, they, they you know, I, I urge you to check it out. Mm. Um, the book obviously has a picture of this vending machine. And so if you do go into the physical store, you're literally given this giant coin to put in the vending machine <laughs> to have That's your great. car come down That's for you. Great. So I think it's just a really great concept. Um, in terms of uh, extreme convenience, the one that comes to mind for me is Bingo Box. It is out of Shanghai, and it takes that sort of Amazon Go cashier list environment that we're seeing and, again, takes it to a new level mm. um, with the, the completely unmanned store. And so it uses technologies, QR codes, RFID chips, still using surveillance cameras and automatic payment systems. But these are, you know, very small footprint stores. They're almost a little bit like containers. They're small boxes <laughs> that are that are, you know, dropped into Drop these spaces. Yeah. That there is, you know, uh, either hard to access or, you know, it is hard to create a traditional retail physical model. And then, um, you know, it takes less time for a retailer to break even in the store because there's very quick ROI. And then it's also very flexible so they can relocate this to a space that's that's uh, in need, uh, that they've identified as an opportunity. I want to so read think- that case study because I want to understand how they prevent just theft. Mm-hmm. How are they not just dropping, basically? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'll, yeah. I'll, let, I'll love yeah. to read that story. It's okay, so let's talk cool about uh, extreme, extreme experience. experience. Wow. Well, I mean, there is some... Um 
some great, great examples. Um, I think I will talk a little bit about IKEA in mm. the Italy in Rome because mm. I had an opportunity to see it last year when I was in Italy for our Ebeltoff meetings. Uh, we actually, uh, Patrick and I, uh, wanted to, um, our meetings were actually in Milan. We landed in Rome and and did some food touring as well as had the opportunity. We drove. It's hard work, but somebody's got to do it. We did and went to see Italy World, and uh, so this IKEA is uh, is is really cool. It's it's taken that smaller style footprint that they've been talking about. You know, they're bringing one to uh, to Toronto, Mm. and so they've uh, they actually chose Italy as another opportunity for these smaller style stores. And what they've done is they actually partnered with Italy and did a pop up shop, a mini um, seven hundred square meter store in in the Italy in Rome. And uh, you know, this was a really great opportunity for them to showcase get new customers and it was it was an example of you know two great brands coming together to partner complementary brands absolutely right? mm-hmm. and so i think that is just you know really blending their services and offering for their customers um, the fourth one uh, sustainable practices um, I'm going to choose one and share one that is not a you know not a traditional retail model, um, but a, an example of a way to drive traffic, and it's called the Empty Shop out of Romania. Hmm. Uh, this shop is a different kind of store because the shelves actually start empty, and customers and visitors to the shopping mall are invited to fill the store with uh, donations. Huh. So it's really driven by the shopping center, the Promenade Mall in, mm. in Romania, along with industry and the Romanian Red Cross. And so people are donating their clothes there, and then they're cleaned and then redistributed to needy families. And the empty shop has collected 73 tons of clothing wow, wow, and wow. donated it to thousands of people across Romania. And this mm. was a pop-up opportunity. So um, the, the campaign organizers... Uh, actually stated that the empty shop is not just about figures, but it's also about solidarity, altruism, and humanity. So I thought it was a really great example of how you know this could be something to bring traffic to sure. um, and 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 help align with this particular shopping center. You know, I saw uh, an echo of that at the Nordstrom Women's Store in New York City. So mm-hmm. where they have the customer pickup area, they actually ha- have some signage around drop off what you don't, you know, that's mm. something you've fallen out of love before. So it feels like a bit of an echo. I'm, I didn't mm. know the process behind it. It's probably the same thing, right? It's an, it's mm. it's just that, okay, here's all that stuff you've bought to pick up. But if you want to drop some stuff off, that's good too. Yeah. Um, I think I saw one retail cannabis store, Planet 13, which is this mm. massive behemoth in Vegas. Mm-hmm. I've been, I, I remember I went there like five o'clock in the morning because I was just driving around easy to, easier to get around early in the morning. That's yeah. my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> um in Vegas. Um, so I, I guess I would expect uh, more retail cannabis, such innovative retail cannabis happening right here in Canada uh, for 2021, which gets me to the question is, is you know, each partner, each group uh, submits some stories. What, did, what kind of stories did you submit or mm-hmm. uh, how did you uh, how did you participate? Yeah, Put you su- on the spot a little bit. Yeah, we submitted a few. Um, I think maybe some were a bit premature, so maybe might make the cut this year. Mm. Uh, w- one of the first cases we put forward was Starship. Uh, Starship falls under the extreme convenience. Mm. Uh, Starship is robots, and not you know people sort of robots. These are small little four wheeler robots. We first were introduced them about two years ago. Um, as you mentioned, we do a lot of work with campuses and so they first really have made their way onto a lot of university Mm. campuses doing food delivery and they are actually kind of replacing Uber Eats um, because they have this flexibility to be able to deliver food anywhere on the campus um, using GPS Mm. and so users can so you know think about think about you know back to the university days and uh 
you know, you're sitting in the library or in a study hall and you're hungry and then you're like, oh, I have to pack up all my stuff and then go across campus. I'm gonna lose maybe, my seat. And, and maybe late at night and yeah. you don't want to have to do that. Lose my seat. Yeah. And so you can actually deliver from the food yeah. vendors and have this delivered right to you. It can find you. And they're very safe. You know, they, they can um, travel over curbs. They can travel through the snow. Mm. You know, they're very, they can go up to four kilometers. Come on. And so, yeah, wow. they're really super cool. Yeah. And we're seeing, um, you know, I've had the opportunity to, to speak to the group. And, uh, you know, we've been trying to uh, use them with a couple of uh, programs that we're working on. And the, the application can be used in convenience, delivery, you know, pick it, picking up your dry cleaning, you know, can just be put in and then sure. in a closed environment. You know, they're not super huge, but they certainly um, can deal with mm. uh, food delivery, groceries, little convenience items and so on. So mm. that was that's one to really watch for. Uh, the other that we um, that you'll find in the book is Mountain Equipment Co-op. Mm. Um, they, as you know, open a store that is totally immersive here on Queen Street in Toronto. Right. Um, you know, they've done things like a big climbing wall, which seems like a natural fit. We've seen other, but in, in combination with all the other things that they've done there, mm. product demos where customers can experience bike trainers and virtual tent life uh, for a full-service bike and ski repair shop, and they have tablets programmed with VR tech to show a variety of in-store products, you know, so you can try them before you purchase them. That store is a good example of greater than the sum of its parts, right? Because mm-hmm. taken individually, you know, climbing wall, not that innovative. Right. Uh, but I think that, you know, the Queen Street store specifically really pulls it all together, that greater the greater the sum of its uh, of its parts, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, we, you know, for folks who are no doubt excited to see the rest, because there's tons of these examples and great, great case studies, uh, where where can they find uh, more? Where can they find the book, and where can they find out more about uh, you and, and JC Williams? Absolutely. Well, I invite people to download the book. It is on our website. The ebook is um, in our library, and you'll find it on our homepage. Um, you can go to www.jcwg.com, and as I said, it's a free download. Certainly, anybody can reach out to me directly. Um, you can follow the company on all the social media channels as well as myself. And you know, we welcome to hear people that want to nominate them. So, hey, that's you know, an interesting idea, really, right? You know, keep us abreast of what we're hearing, sure, sure. what you're hearing, what you're seeing. Um, if your company's wanting to, you know, tell their story, we'd love to hear that too. Thanks for sharing and uh, look forward to keeping in touch. Great. Thanks for having me. The situation in Canada is that Bill C-4, which is the implementation bill, is currently at committee stage. So uh, about halfway through the House of Commons. Um, it has to come out of committee, go through report stage, um, and then have a vote at third reading, and then it would progress to the Senate. Um, the good news is that the Senate is doing what it calls a pre-study. And in a pre-study, the Senate essentially looks at the bill before it gets it, thereby minimizing mm. the amount of time that it would need to take to look at the bill once it arrives. Kind of like a parallel process. Kind yeah, of they do a parallel. It's a, it's a hurry-up offense, I guess. Um, you know, the Senate's not known for hurrying, um, <laughs> and they defend their prerogatives to, you know, do sober, sober second, second, second thought. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, fairly, uh, fairly uh, strongly, but that said, they are doing the pre-study. So, um, you know, and then the next processes are... are are just, you know, they're not pro forma, but I mean, you know, the royal assent and so on is, um, is you know, done very quickly uh, in the Senate chamber typically. So nobody knows with certainty when this will get done, but essentially the COSMA or, you know, uh, if it's the U.S., it's the, called the USMCA, and I think it's called like T. Mex or something like that, in, and, and the Mexico. and the reason for that is no nation will will have an agreement or a law that starts with a foreign country's initials. That, that basically is, that is exactly right. Right. So, um, but not a big deal at the end of the day because the same provisions are in each. Um, so essentially, it comes into being ninety days after ratification. It's not implausible to think that ratification could take place, um, you know, in March. Uh, in which case you'd have April, May, and June would be, you know, the, you know, sort of the abeyance period before it comes into effect. So late May, early June strike us as entirely plausible outcomes for the implementation. 
So is it your assessment that the, there's a political will to, to make that happen? It seems like uh, all the parties are more or less aligned uh, to make it happen. Yeah. I, so, I mean, the, um, the conservatives have made it clear that they're unlikely to defeat a bill. And um, even the NDP have taken a position that is more sort of constructive criticism, mm. some observations about labor provisions and so on, but don't appear necessarily that they're going to vote against it. Um, the complexion of the House of Commons is currently uh, such that uh, the NDP do not have a big incentive to bring down the government. Hmm. Um, this is not currently flagged as what's called confidence matter that would lead to to a new election. Um, essentially, there's enough of a combination of parties, particularly of the, of the liberals and conservatives vote for it, that it doesn't really matter what the other parties do, but it may well be a fairly broad consensus. Yeah, and, and it's also um, the case that uh, the Democrats in the U.S. made some changes around labor in Mexico that probably were in line with what the NDP were thinking as well, right? So, uh, you know, it kind of dovetails into the question for retailers who understood the agreement before it went down to ratification in, in the U.S. and Mexico, it's fair to say it pretty much stayed the same with some other things. Is that a fair yeah, statement? Yeah, certainly as far as retailers are concerned. There were some changes, as said, on, on labor. Uh, there were some changes with respect to biologics, certain kinds of uh, pharmaceutical products, but it didn't come back into the retail space to a discernible degree. Well, that's a good uh, a segue into my question, and this was the question, of course, of retailers is, okay, I know there are some changes around de minimis. I know that Retail Council of Canada did a great job uh, aligning and, and, and protecting our interests in the de minimis file, but remind me again what that means, and, and I, there's a chart I have here and in the report, but Carl, take us through the changes for de minimis and, and what you think they mean for retailers? Sure. So, um, I, as you know, as listeners, viewers will know, um, the U.S. had pushed for a much, much higher de minimis rate, uh, something in the order of the U.S. rate, which is $800 U.S. Um, there's a bunch of reasons why America is happy with high, having a much higher uh, de minimis rate. One is that they don't have a federal sales tax, mm. and they don't collect state or local ta- sales taxes at the border. So therefore, it isn't a tax break in essence. Um, it's only a duty issue on the U.S. side. Whereas for us, it's also foregoing taxes and duty taxes as well as the duties that we are required to collect ourselves and therefore creates a much more significant unlevel playing field. There is also a move in the U.S. to ensure the payment of state and local taxes on interstate shipments, so Mm. to some degree the principle is the same. Um, So uh, we didn't get everything we wanted, which was no change. Um, but in essence, what the uh, what the and it was this went down to the wire. This was one of those last thorny issues. Um, what the Canadian negotiating team ultimately agreed to was to go to forty dollars as a de minimis, up from the current twenty. Um, you know, if if de minimis had been indexed since it was first introduced, uh, you know, uh, almost thirty years ago, it would actually have exceeded that forty dollar level already. It's not a perfect apples-to-apples comparison because at the time there was no fed, uh, no GST, uh, but nevertheless. Um, and we should pause here yeah. quickly just to explain uh, the concept of de minimis. So de minimis uh, basically is for inbound shipments. Uh, anything under $20 would not be currently and, and what was enforced. Anything under $20 would not be taxed or duties because it, the, it wasn't worth the handling costs, basically, right? So that am I getting that right? That's the, essentially the yeah. That's in issue. essence. So there's a there's a remission order uh, that that exempts uh, courier or uh, traditionally has exempted both courier and postal shipments crossing into Canada mm. from any taxes or duties um, uh, for, on values under twenty dollars, and that's the value of the parcel, uh, not other of sub goods within it. And that's quite common around the world. If you look at the EU, I think the number's twenty two euros. Uh, if you look at the UK, I think it's sixteen pounds. So we're sort of in the ballpark yep. uh, in, in that regard. Um, so it's now uh, going to rise to forty dollars. So any parcel that has a value. Um, below $40 uh, can enter Canada um, tax-free and and, and free of duties. Although, bear in mind, if it's coming in from the U.S. as a case in point, it will have paid U.S. duty on the way in if it was manufactured in, say, China. 
Um, so it's not that they get away duty-free entirely. It's just, you know, they're paying a different set of duties. Obviously, something manufactured in the U.S. or Canada or Mexico is duty-free to begin with. Right. So what we're really talking about is the shipment of goods from outside North America into Canada. If it's under 40 bucks, yes, they will have paid the U.S. duty. They don't have to pay the Canadian duty on top, uh, and they don't pay sales taxes on that. Um, the important nuance here is that this does not apply to Canada Post or to postal shipments. It only applies to courier shipments, and that's pretty important for a variety of reasons. Um, It's tradition that courier, air freight, which is the basis of courier, is an international issue, but post is a domestic issue. And so we would have been more vulnerable, frankly, if the postal uh, rate was to increase to 40 or, or had it increased to a higher level because post is a relatively cheap method of shipment. When it comes to courier shipments, you know, the shipping costs, frankly, would offset much of the tax and duty savings to begin with. So unlike the situation currently where duties are exempt and taxes are exempt at 20, under the new system, and this actually mirrors the EU's approach too, there'll be no taxes if it's under 40 bucks. And there'll be no duties if it's under $150. So now we have a two-tier system, right? That's right. So we have a two-tier system. Um, And so anything under $150 but over $40, there'll be duty relief but not tax relief. Anything over $150, obviously, there's, you know, the, it's treated normally. And that's, in fact, what they, they, they have done in the European Union. Is they have a split level. I think it's 150 euros for duty, and it's 22 for, for tax. Um, bear in mind that duties are, are, you know, there are some products that have relatively high duty, certain kinds of apparel, footwear, and so mm. on. But on overall, duties are typically more like 1%, 2% of the, of the price of goods. Um, obviously, taxes depending on the province you're in, you know, varying anywhere from 5 to, to, you know, to 15%. Right. Um, so that's the essence of it. Uh, you know, is it a perfect deal? No, but I think in, in, you know, in general, when you look at trade deals, you've got to look not only at the deal you got, but at the bullets you dodged. Right. And that is certainly true with respect to de minimis. There was a lot of pressure for change. And this is not the first time we've had the de minimis file on your on top of your desk. It's been many, many years of, of through budget cycles and through all kinds of things, right? And in some ways, it's actually more settled than uh, now. So um, there have been a- some fairly prominent advocates of changes to de minimis, um, particularly the courier companies. Of course, they stand to do very, very well by you know, having more shipments that are incentivized by having lower tax and duty costs right. than what is on offer in Canada. So FedEx, UPS, uh, Amazon and eBay have both been very, very active lobbyists in this regard, completely outside of this trade negotiation, and have taken a number of runs at both conservative and liberal governments over the last decade. And during the trade negotiation as and, well, And right? certainly they weighed in heavily during the trade negotiation and managed to get the backing of the Canada-U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which should probably be more properly termed the Chamber of U.S. Commerce in Canada. Um, <laughs> but and, we're here for you. And, and and a number of others, including some credit card companies that were thinking, well, maybe if it's all e-commerce, we are a greater percentage of the payments mix and so on. So we had quite an array of, of, of opponents on this file. Um, they have shown up a number of times in the past in budget cycles. Um, and we've had to sort of fight it back each time. Uh, fortunately, in some respects, the way this has unfolded, now the federal government has a much, much better understanding right. of what the implications <laughs> would be if they had a higher de minimis. And we had, um, we had some uh, fine work done for us uh, by KPMG uh, and others, actually, Deloitte uh, that, and A.T. Kearney, um, that bolstered our position and showed what the negative impacts would be on Canadian investment, on Canadian employment, and, of course, on retail sales. So in some respects, we've now baked in a more advantageous position, uh, at least as far as understanding of, amongst policymakers. Hmm. Um, so that's a, you know, that's a positive outcome. So, Carl, last question. Um, anything other? Anything else you want? Congratulations, by the way, on the, on the de minimis file and, and uh, Cosma overall. Um, any other things you want to highlight briefly that uh, stand out in your mind for retailers? That oh, and, and I guess if any of you have any uh, questions now or later, uh, reach out to Carl uh, as well. Sure. There, there are a couple of things. One is actually quite um, focused, and the other one is, is broader even than the topic we just discussed. 
So there is a process for the allocation, not just under COSMA, but also under a bunch of other multilateral treaties, uh, allocation of supply-managed goods. Um, we are pushing to obtain uh, hmm. a share of that for retailers. It's a, it's a tough uphill battle. Supply management is a highly... It's like fraud. dairy dairy, yeah, and dairy, other products. Uh, yeah. Uh, and um, and uh, we're, 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 we're pushing hard, but I'm not sure how much success we'll enjoy. We did get a bid under the CETA Treaty with, um, with cheese. I understand that this may not be of direct interest to everybody here, but it's, hmm. uh, it's certainly something that is an issue for some retailers who deal in foods. I guess the other one is actually panning back. I mean, you know, this is a trade agreement with $1.5 trillion wow. Canadian wow. of trilateral trade, you know. And so, again, coming back to the theme of the bu- bullets that you dodged, we always said our issues in, in this were de minimis, but they were also the impact on the broader economy if our trade deal were to founder. If we had... You know, had at the end of, of NAFTA, as was you know, as President Trump had originally threatened, uh, one situation might have led us to something where WTO rules would apply. That would have had about a five billion dollar negative effect, ne- negative effect on um, Canadian retailers, largely through the imposition of some duties, but also because of some effects on the Canadian economy. We also modeled a much more um, Alarm, uh, alarming scenario, which was an actual trade war breaks out, and you get mm. the kind of tit for tat. Um, and we certainly saw some. We of that saw that even. with aluminum and steel sure. uh, back and forth. And our our uh, the work that At Carney did on that suggested we were looking at a twenty five billion dollar negative wow. impact, which is obviously pretty substantial, even in a half a you know in a half a trillion dollar retail base. So um, so again, you know the the outcome we didn't get uh, was obviously uh, much 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 more pernicious than the one that we got, and so in general we're supportive of where things have landed. Great. So uh, thanks so much for coming on. So in summary, if all goes uh, as expected or well by the fall, or very early fall, we should have a new trade agreement in place. And and again, any retailers who have any questions uh, now or later, uh, reach out to uh, Carl and his team and and. Um, I uh, should be be sure to have to answer them. For sure. Me. You know what? I've actually got one other topic that I thought I might touch on just for Please? a second. So, in the context of all the back and forth on de minimis, the government took a pretty long, hard look at how taxes and duties are collected, and and so, you know, the de minimis rule is the official rule, but it was found that there were significant problems with the postal rails, in particular, um, of how packages were coming in and whether taxes and duties were being collected. That's something that existed outside of this negotiation, sure. but is obviously a concern to retailers because the de minimis rule is only relevant to the extent that it's actually it's enforced. enforced. Yeah, if you yeah. can ship in a $200 and no duty and no tax is collected, then obviously that's a huge advantage that you have shipping in from outside relative to a Canadian retailer. And so that process is underway. There have also been some changes with respect to um, to postal rates charged on, on Chinese postal shipments. Mm. And, uh, and so there are a number of other good side benefits that came from the an- analytical work that was done on the underpinnings of this issue in NAFTA. Great. Well, uh, as always, a a comprehensive but uh, succinct overview. If you put those two things together, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks to Lisa and Carl for being my guests in this episode. Now let's hit the highlights of the retail news in Canada and around the world with Retail This Week for the week of March 2nd, 2020. Uh, So obviously stories about the coronavirus, COVID-19 dominated the story even in uh, in the world of retail from a whole number of different perspectives. Uh, I saw bit of a run on uh, on the weekend. Uh, Costco was in the news with uh, lots of people heading to Costco. It's interesting where they head to to go stock up. Um, I was at Costco, my local Costco, a couple of days ago. Everything was fine. Uh, crowds were at well, were fine, usual. Uh, you know, a few um, a few holes in a few spots, but uh, the only notable thing is they were out of toilet paper. Interesting, but uh, people's priorities are. Uh, but otherwise, the store was fine. Uh, restocked, tons of water, uh, but just had a bit of a run on TP. Uh, so uh, we actually didn't had, uh, you know, when we think of putting the Retail This Week newsletter together, they actually the lead story is about Tappermans, which is a, a proud family business from uh, 95 years ago. This is from Furniture World, 95 years uh, in retail. And uh, the Tepperman uh, family does an amazing job. Um, Andrew Tepperman, president, 95 years ago, Nate and Rose Tepperman created a foundation that Bill and Rochelle strengthened. Uh, and now third generation. So they've done a great job. They've done some recent rebranding, uh, and you'll find them in uh, southern Ontario, actually, 
you would find uh, fine Tepperman's uh, furniture. So congratulations to them. Uh, studies uh, from the CSCA, the, uh, the Ryerson University, top retail 100. So every uh, couple of years or every year they do a refresh on who are the top 100 uh, retailers. And, and it really uh, couple, does a couple of things, highlights the, the concentration. I think concentration, top 10 retailers make up about uh, 70%. Anyway, it's graphically represented. It's really good. Um, there's an article you'll find at Canadian Retail. you find it online at Retail Council site. Uh, notably absent from that. Uh, and they did comment in the article is is Amazon, and um, I guess for a variety of reasons, it's not included in the main line, but they comment on it, and they said if it was included, uh, it'd be pretty big because they estimate Amazon is somewhere in the range of sixteen billion dollars in Canada. That's a little higher. Uh, that's probably the highest estimate I've heard in a while. Um, I was playing usually with a number of twelve billion, thinking a billion dollars per. DC, no one knows for sure. Of course, Amazon knows for sure. Um, but in the the CSCA, they call the ball at sixteen billion one six. Uh, pretty impressive uh, in any regard. Ontario received four hundred and fifty cannabis store applications. This is from MJ Biz Daily. So there's a bit of a deadline uh, this week in terms of uh, the next round uh, of um, uh, stores that are going to be given licenses to open. Three hundred stores are going to be given licenses to open. It looks like four hundred fifty have applied so far. Uh, if you're in uh, in the Toronto area, Retail Council Canada is having a Retail Cannabis Forum on uh, April 2nd. Please join us. You can learn more at retailcouncil.org. I'll be on the stage uh, with a uh, uh, upfront and uh, one-to-one uh, interview with uh, the leader from uh, the OCS, the Ontario Cannabis Store. He's the distributor and uh, online retailer. But in this context, it's really about what it's like to be uh, what it's like to be a distributor. I'm going to be asking some questions. Um, at the highest level where we try to sum up what uh, the trends are from, from their perspective because they get to see all the data from all the different, uh, all the different perspectives uh, from the LP perspective and the retail perspective. Best managed company, Henry's. So uh, last week, uh, I interviewed uh, Jillian Stein, CEO of Henry's, and, and they're in the news this week from a Canadian business as uh, one of the best managed companies in Canada. Congratulations to them. Um, you know, if you want to hear why, really just listen to my interview with Jillian. It's a great interview, and she really articulates why and how uh, they've uh, had had their business since 1909. Great Canadian success story. Uh, so tune into that, or of course check it out on uh, Canadian Business. HBC Chairman Richard Baker replaces Helena Folks as CEO. Uh, surprising, um, not me, uh, but uh, I thought uh, actually almost to the month. Uh, I wasn't thinking that uh, Helena Folks would last for one reason or another too, too long in that role, but uh, looks like that came to pass uh, from that from the Globe and Mail. Uh, what else? Um, in the videos, a couple of videos. It's a couple of videos, actually, one from the Wall Street Journal, which um, is a great video because it's just a reporter on the scene kind of taking film of the Chinese factories and how there's a few people there for sure, and they're gearing up to start. Still, the vast majority of uh, workers are not there either because... Uh, they're a little bit afraid, or because they're still um, they're still constrained uh, constrained from traveling, uh, and then uh, some consultants from PwC talking about um, how companies can mitigate COVID nineteen from a supply chain perspective. Um, you know the options for that are are thin uh, and far between, but uh, they do exist. And uh, sophisticated retail experts, as we know, um, have uh, are very clever, and uh, we wish them the best of luck. Retail around the world, a great article from McKinsey. Fashion industry in 2020. Uh, this is one of those big McKinsey um, papers that that highlights ten themes that are crucial for the fashion industry. It's a it's a must read, really, if you want to understand the fashion read from that very McKinsey strategic perspective. Uh, Wayfair posts eye watering 985 million dollar loss for the year. Uh, wow, frat um, from retail dive. Uh, Joe Colomb, uh, founder of Popular Trader Joe's, uh, passed away. He uh, he passed away. He started uh, Creator Joe's in uh, 1967, passed away at 89 uh, last week. So a retail uh, giant. They now have 500 outlets in, in 40 states. Uh, and our very own farm boy here in Canada in you know small and larger ways is actually patterned after Trader Joe's. Uh, so congratulations uh, for such a, a legacy. What a great legacy um, Joe leaves behind. Uh, article on stockpiling going on in the U.S. Uh, near cor- uh, coronavirus clusters. Um, hand sanitizer sales skyrocketed 619% nationwide in the U.S., uh, according to marketing forum, uh, firm Catalina. 
And uh, wow. Um, so I think uh, if if you're listening, uh, good luck in finding any hand sanitizer. I think uh, rightly so much of it is being put where it needs to be uh, right now, which is in the hospitals. If you don't have any now, uh, washing your hands, number one tip. Um, REI closes corporate campus, speaking of coronavirus. A deep cleaning after two employees may have been exposed to the coronavirus. I mean, a lot of, lots of retail travel, retailers travel, uh, though that is definitely starting to shut down. And so I guess uh, a couple of the um, uh, REI closed their headquarters and everyone to work at home. Uh, Nike in their uh, European headquarters in Amsterdam did the same thing uh, as one of their employees was diagnosed uh, with the virus. So very prudent uh, activities. Independent retailer Spiritleaf, uh, our friend Darren Bondar, who uh, I interviewed Paige back, uh, was at the late uh, uh, late uh, September, early October, had a great interview with Darren. Uh, he plans to have 46 stores open. And Darren's got a, uh, a franchise a system, franchise model, very, uh, very successful. Darren, such a great operator. Uh, so keep your eye on Spiritleaf. That is for sure. Uh, very, very savvy operator. Um, from uh, Vancouver, Ming Woe Cookware family closes in Chinatown. That's uh, you know, thinking shout out to my um, our colleague and uh, my friend Greg out in Vancouver, who uh, triggered this one for me, and uh, it appeared in the news in the Daily Hive. Hundred years, more than a hundred years, uh, in Vancouver, legendary establishment Ming Woe Cookware closed this week. Uh, not a decision easy to make, I suspect, and uh, confirmed here. Kensington Market business is feeling stress and rising rents. Um, you know, it's tough to run a, you, everyone wants a great funky market and then everyone wants to live there and then voila, the, uh, the rent goes up and the, and the taxes go up. So, uh, something to keep our eye on planet organic market. Not the first time that they've been in, uh, the podcast, uh, in closing stores, but now they're done. They're, they're wrapping up all locations, planet organic. And I guess, you know, lesson learned from that is not that organic foods, are not popular, but that uh, they have been mainlined. So it's very, very difficult for specialty uh, to keep up with uh, the mainline grocery retailers uh, when they all adopt uh, at the scale uh, organic uh, foods. But uh, not impossible, but very, very difficult as Planet Organic uh, is proven. Uh, and for my hometown of Ottawa, Mrs. Tiddly Winkles, uh, again, she was in the podcast closing one of the stores. Now they've had to close the other one. Uh, not great years after 40 years. Uh, not great years uh, in the toy business, and I suspect this will not be, may not be another good year, and not for the reason uh, of it was last year, but uh, I'm not sure uh, in, in which way and how those products are going to get made. So many of them are made uh, in China, so there may be a bit of a delay, but anyway, it's early days. Uh, but, uh, you know, the toy category does not need uh, any other headwinds, uh, so we wish everyone luck, uh, retailer and, uh, and on the vendor side for sure. Uh, mixed brands becoming used for big retails. This is uh, right back to what Lisa was saying about the live, work, shop plays right here. An example uh, in, uh, in um, you've got 2,000 market condos, 290 market rental units, 290 city of Vancouver owned below market rents all going in uh, to this uh, shopping mall in Vancouver. That from BIV, business in Vancouver. Um, what else? Uh, coronavirus. Well, here's our Amazon story of the week. Coronavirus forces small-scale Amazon sellers to look for manufacturers outside China because, of course, as a as a marketplace vendor, you're you're punished uh, by running out of stock, regardless of the plat- regardless of the of the reason, and the, the algorithms just punish you, uh, and it's, you get demoted, and and that's very hard to get back. Demoted in the search rank, of course, is what I'm saying. That from from uh, the Globe Mail. And here's an interesting one: Rent the runway assures customers cleaning clothes amid vi- virus outbreak. So didn't even think of that. But it uh, turns out they steam the clothes between 248 and 302 degrees, um, which I guess uh, is uh, good uh, from their perspective. They checked into it, and that's good enough to kill uh, the viruses. So interesting, hey, eh? uh, when we think about that big reuse trend, uh, then suddenly you lay on a contagious virus. Uh, it changes the ballgame a little bit, but uh, good for them for coming out and talking about that, uh, that to their business. All right. Well, uh, that's a wrap on this episode of the Voice of Retail podcast. Uh, I am uh, Michael LeBlanc. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on Apple iTunes, your favorite podcast platform, including Spotify. Uh, great news. I, uh, I'm now tracking is the number one retail industry podcast uh, in Spotify. So thanks for all my uh, listeners, uh, my Spotify listeners. Uh, please rate and review. That's very important. That will help me get my rankings up in uh, Apple. So if you could take a minute and do that, I'd be much appreciated, appreciative. 
uh, and be sure to recommend or friend or colleague in the retail industry. I'm Michael LeBlanc, founder and president of Emmy LeBlanc Company, Inc., and you can learn more about me on www.emmyleblanc.co or, of course, on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great week. <laughs>